Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to, well, me. My name is Sarah Nixon, public programmer at the St. Catharines Museum. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. On this episode of Museum Chat Live, we are digging into the history of the BME Church in St. Catharines and the role the Salem Chapel has played in our community. The BME Church has been a vital center for the Black community here in St. Catharines since the mid-19th century, and it continues to play a role today, both as a religious congregation and as a place of learning. To help tell this story, I sit down with Rochelle Bush, an active member of the BME Church and a voice of Black history in St. Catharines. Rochelle was wonderful at shedding light into the complexity of Black history in our city and the role the BME Church played in the Underground Railroad and beyond. This is an incredibly important conversation and we hope you learn from the insights and perspectives shared. Have a listen. sitting here with Rochelle Bush. We're so excited to have you on Museum Chat Live. Uh, do you mind maybe just introducing yourself and what your role is in the community? Well, my name is Rochelle Bush and I'm a member trustee of the Salem Chapel BME Church, which is a national historic site here in St. Catharines. Um, and my role is the local historian of the church. Fantastic. We're so excited to uh, have your expertise on the podcast. So how did the uh, BME Church then come to St. Catharines? It initially started anywhere between 1814 and 1820. We don't have that solid information yet. Uh, there was a professor, well, a PhD candidate at the time in the early 70s from Western University. He indicates 1814. Another PhD candidate, when she was doing her research a couple of years ago for McMaster, she identified 1820. And then local history or oral history um, indicated 1820 in the Queenston Street area, which would have been the former Richard Pierpoint um, property. It didn't start off as a BME church. It was an African Methodist Episcopal Society. Okay. After we were relocated to the Geneva North Street area, and when I say after we, I mean the St. Catharines Black community, um, with the help of Oliver Phelps and, of course, William Hamilton Merritt, we purchased another piece of property on North Street, and then we also sent a petition to the New York State AME Conference, so the African Methodist Episcopal Conference, asking for full installation and pastoral care. They had missionary um, ministers here, and they decided that they would establish churches here in St. Catharines, Niagara Falls, well, it was Drummondville at the time, as well as Niagara, which would have been Niagara-on-the-Lake. So they did do that with St. Catharines becoming the first. So that was in 1838. The petition was sent in 1837. So then we became the African Methodist Episcopal Church Bethel Chapel. Okay. Yes. 1856, we severed our ties with the United States. 
and we became the British Methodist Episcopal Church because we wanted to connect more so with uh, British policies and British ideals. It was the country that was giving us our freedom and our equal rights. So, of course, we wanted that. And that came about because the U.S. in 1850 passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which meant any person who was of African descent living in the northern states could be accused of being a runaway slave, even if they were a free black person with their manumission papers, then they could be captured, tried, and returned to slavery or sent into slavery for the first time. So that being said, after a few years, members decided we're not going to the U.S. under the Fugitive Slave Laws. So that's how we became BME. Okay, so the community's interest in affiliating with the British came from kind of the the politics that were going on in the time of the Fugitive Slave Act. Exactly. When you relocated to the Geneva Street area, what caused that relocation then? The construction of the Welland Canal. The canal was running through Richard Pierpoint's property, and the creek that was there was named Dick's Creek or Captain Mm -hmm. Dick's Creek after Richard Pierpoint. So in order to construct the first Welland Canal, people that were living along the canal had to be relocated and the black community was settled in that area and of course we were relocated to Geneva North and Welland Avenue. Oh that's really interesting because now that that location's really become a symbol of the black community because of the BME church being there. Well it was the outskirts of town and if I'm correct it was the southwestern area and it was all underdeveloped. Did any local abolitionists have any role in that relocation or even just helping to settle the black community at that time? Well, the two primary, William Hamilton Merritt and Oliver Phelps. William Hamilton Merritt, hands down, this is just my opinion, number one abolitionist in Niagara. Mm -hmm. Number two, provincially, because, you know, nobody can touch George Brown. What role did the BME Church have in the Underground Railroad? Well, St. Catharines itself was the last terminus on the eastern line of the Underground Railroad. So the BME Church here, AME BME Church, was established as well as the Zion Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. So collectively, as the last terminus, those who were Methodist, those who were Baptist, they would seek help from either one of the churches. The BME was uh, more prominent because of its connection, of course, to Tubman. So that's, that's pretty much it. It's because so many people arriving by way of the Underground Railroad came with nothing that once they got here, they needed shelter, they needed some type of aid. But we also had the Refugee Slaves Friend Society here that was running at the same time. So that was formed in 1852. So they would seek help from that um, organization as well as either one of the churches. And then the primary station manager that was here was Hiram Wilson, who was a white male, with regards to the fugitive slave law. The reason why it gained traction after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law was passed is not because of black folks. It's because it ticked off a lot of white northern people. They were now bound to assist the slave power. Mm -hmm. So the federal government said that they had to assist. So if um, a fugitive, an accused fugitive or, you know, an actual fugitive was identified Whatever white person was around was obligated under the federal law to assist with that person's capture. Wow. Yeah. And that really ticked off northern white people. Mm-hmm. They didn't like that wow. because they were turning a blind eye to slavery before or, you know, some would have, you know, minimal interest or they knew about it. Now it was coming to haunt them as well. What do you mean I have to drop my humanitarian lifestyle and now help the South? 
capture people and enslave them. And they didn't want to do it. Absolutely. The majority, yes. Even if you had um, humanitarian or abolitionist sentiments, you were now yes. bound by law. That's right. That's right. To enslave other people. So it turned a lot of them into anti-slavery sympathizers mm -hmm. because, you know, they really weren't interested or concerned with slavery. They knew it existed, but mm -hmm. it wasn't in their backyard until that happened. Exactly. Wow. And then so as people were kind of more forced to play a more active role in the abolitionist movement, that's when we see a lot more activity happening in, in Canada then? Oh, sure, because now the objective was to channel them through the northern states so that they could settle into Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whenever you talk about the Underground Railroad, St. Catharines, Harriet Tubman is a central figure in that story. Um, could we talk a little bit more deeply about Harriet Tubman's connection with the BME Church and the Underground Railroad? Tubman, okay, in her first biography, Sarah Bradford indicated that uh, her parents were Methodist. So she alludes to that. In William Still's narratives, um, there's a couple of areas where he indicates that, you know, well, especially when he's interviewing her father, Ben Ross, he accused his slaveholder, a slave master, of being a pretend Methodist preacher. Tubman herself says, you know, while she was enslaved, there was a lot of Methodist hymns. So through elimination, we know where Tubman wasn't when she was here in St. Catharines. Because a lot of historians are, oh, did she go to the uh, BME church? Where was she? And this has been coming up for years. So through deduction, we know she didn't go to the white churches. She wasn't a Baptist. They haven't argued and said that she was. That only leaves the Methodist church. And we know she was a God-fearing Christian. We know that she worshipped all the time. She spoke to God on a daily basis. She communicated with the Lord. So where was she? Even though we already have that background. So to us, oral history always dictated that she was a Methodist. So African Methodist or British Methodist. Why? Because she attended the Methodist Church in Philadelphia. She attended Thompson um, Memorial, which is Amy Zion Church, a Methodist church in Auburn, New York. So after the Civil War. So why wouldn't she be attending the Methodist Church here? Tubman would be our most famous member. And without question to us, she was a Methodist. And without question to many African Americans, because the majority of Methodist churches there claim her. So mm -hmm. any area that she traveled. Okay, so we established Tubman's connection to the BME Church. Yes. Maybe Could we, um, and what would have been her connection with the Underground Railroad and St. Catharines in that, in that larger sphere. That's okay. So because it was the primary terminus, so the last stop in the eastern line of the Underground Railroad, because there was two lines for the Underground Railroad, east as well as west. Tubman identified in the early 1890s to Professor William Siebert, who was from Ohio State mm -hmm. um, University, that she went, she was on the eastern line. So Frederick Douglass did this years earlier, so about 20 years earlier. First stop would have been Baltimore, Maryland, then Wilmington, Delaware, all Tubman Associates, Philadelphia, where William Still was, New York City, where Oliver Johnson and um, Sidney Howard Day were. Then, of course, Albany, New York, where Stephen Myers was, Syracuse, Jermaine Logan, Frederick Douglass in Rochester, then passing through Buffalo, then Suspension Bridge, and then on to St. Catharines. So Douglass identified St. Catharines as Hiram Wilson as the last station manager, and he indicated that Baltimore was the first. Tubman confirmed it with Wilbur Siebert later on. Eastern Line, probably because it was in close proximity. And then, of course, after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, she, too, mm -hmm. came to Canada to, you know, ensure that her equal rights and her freedom and her safety were secured. Okay. Yes. And she did live in St. Catharines for a period of time. Well, between it, the old narrative was 1851 to 1857. Mm -hmm. 
after a new book was written about Tubman Bound for the Promised Land by Kate Clifford Larson, she confirmed that Harriet Tubman left here in May 1859, purchased property in Auburn, New York, went on the Boston lecture circuit. But a couple of months later, after the John Brown raid, Tubman was identified as a co-conspirator, so she had to relocate back to St. Catharines, where she remained here up until about 1861. So the documentation supports that Tubman was here. She founded the Fugitive Aid Society with other members like Horatio Wilkinson. Um, but it's William Lloyd Garrison's publication of The Liberator, who he put an, a notice in for Tubman and members of the Fugitive Aid Society in December 1861, mm -hmm. saying that, you know, send support to this Fugitive Aid Society in St. Catharines. Mm -hmm. January 1862, we do know that she left somewhere, whether it's St. Catharines, so this is still part of the argument, St. Catharines or Auburn, New York, to go speak with Governor Andrew in Massachusetts so that he could enlist her in the Civil War. So then from there, she had a a brief time period to settle her affairs, and then May she enlisted and ended up in South Carolina. Wow. Yeah, so just to get back to the original question, 1851 to 1861 is the narrative as it has stood since 2003. Is there anything more you can tell us about the Underground Railroad and the BME Church? Well, the church itself was used for uh, civil rights activities and abolitionist activity but it was one of the primary terminus. So it was well documented at the time during uh, her heyday as um, a religious institution, as well as a stop along the Underground Railroad. Okay, so yeah. it was a stop. So we had... Um, well, the city was the stop. Yes, okay. The, the sites were the areas where they could go. Right. So, and in the Colored Village, which was the, the nice way people phrased the area, better way to say it is the outskirts of St. Catharines, it was the church as well as, well, both churches. So they would have been the primary. But if we had to venture out and we needed facilities, then of course the town hall was available to us as well. Um, and when you say both churches, you mean Salem Chapel and the Zion Baptist yes. Church? Okay. Yes, In In this way then, if Salem Chapel or the BME Church, if it had such a prominent role in things like the Underground Railroad and of resettling refugees once they came to St. Catharines. How do you think the BME Church helped to build and shape the Black community here in St. Catharines? Of course, the area was segregated. Um, the churches were segregated at the time, but I mean, it didn't stop people from going to visit other churches. Um, and I can tell you this, my uncle said that the first white member, to his knowledge, came in in 1988, but others have said 1984. But we do know historically that black folks attended white churches and had membership early in the 1850s, 1860s. Um, but how it actually helped the community build, like we put down roots after the Civil War, like I'm saying my family, many families returned to the United States because they were searching for their loved ones. A lot of my relatives just moved across the border, Buffalo, Niagara Falls, New York, and the western New York area. Mm -hmm. And that connection still continues today. Mm -hmm. So they, we still, you know, trans-border crossings. But how it shaped the community, years ago, nobody was interested in the Underground Railroad. So this just became something of interest to all levels of government, probably on a tourism level in 1984 when the book um, when National Geographic published the Underground Railroad story, that put St. Catharines on the map because the story was about Tubman and her last terminus, her final stop. But we've been here for a long time. Um, it's shaped the community in the sense that 
since the mid 80s, the, the community as a whole, not everybody is interested in the church. Prior to that, it was the religious groups that were interested in what was going on with the church. So there was always the helping hand, whether it was, you know, Queen Street Baptist, St. Paul Street Methodist, St. George's Church, all of those, all the churches work together. So we have that helping to build the community in the sense of the 1980s onwards in terms of almost like teaching and and mm-hmm. spreading that message of what that history was. Mm-hmm. Um, the BME Church seems to be like a catalyst and an essential spot to go to to learn about that history and actually feel it too because the building's still there, right? Well, yes, because the building is uh, there and it's it's you know an authentic site. But when it comes to learning about the history, people can learn about the history from the here, the St. Catherine's Museum, the Public Library, Brock University, as well as the BME Church. Um, and I think it's really important to have these resources so publicly available so mm-hmm. that people can learn and dig a little bit deeper and, and understand how those connections have had a legacy here in St. Catharines in Absolutely. a lot of ways. I know here at the St. Catharines Museum, um, we have a number of photographs of the BME Church taken all throughout the 20th century. Um, and most feature large groups of people standing outside of the church. And that could just be different congregations. I think some of them are, you know, before a picnic or before some sort of celebration. Um, and another photograph is of the St. Catharines Orioles, which was the first all-black hockey team in Ontario. It was formed in 1932. All the players from that hockey team were from the BME Church. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about what could this tell us about the role of the BME Church in the black community into the 20th century? Um, to my knowledge, the photos taken in 18, uh, excuse me, 1937. The league itself mo- mostly played against natives. Very few times did they play against white teams. But it was just something that was of interest because who doesn't like the sport of hockey, especially if you're growing up around here. With that said, my grandfather's in there, a couple of uncles, you know, <laughs> you name it. Yeah. yeah. But we hear a lot of hush stories. And my uncle, who just passed a couple of years ago, he would tell us hush stories because sometimes it wasn't always nice. Sometimes it wasn't always nice just living directly in this community. Because Mm -hmm. let's face it, racism existed during the Underground Railroad here in St. Catharines. Mm -hmm. Racism existed then and racism exists today. Thank goodness Mr. Wood had an interest Mm -hmm. and he had no problem. Um, And, you know, transportation was available. He was a sponsor because he knew there was the genuine interest. Also, um, that being said, my uh, brother, my oldest brother, he had that picture put into the Hockey Hall of Fame um, in the 70s, so mid to late 70s. Do you think we could make, maybe touch a little bit on the racism that would have, that might have been faced by the black community in St. Catharines? No, there were good times. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to deny that. It's like, during the Underground Railroad, they would have the Emancipation Day celebrations and everybody would come together. But then you would have incidents uh, like, um, you know, black men marching in military uh, gear. So a, a racist uh, riot breaks out because some white people didn't want to see that. Mm. Some white people didn't want black males playing against them in hockey. Some white people didn't want black folks living in particular areas of the city. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of things have occurred over the years. And and I think there there's a tendency to, to differentiate Canada from the United States in those regards. But yeah. it's very much alive here. Oh, oh 100%. What's sad is people don't want to have the discussion. They didn't want to have the discussion then. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have the discussion now. And I think having those discussions, though, is important for us to understand that Mm -hmm. history, though. 
And I think it's important to note that we have this outskirts neighborhood that was likely outskirts yeah. for a reason. Yes. And that's yeah. important to talk about, yeah. too, the fact that, you know, the black community was relocated for the building of the Welland Canal and yeah. didn't get to pick yeah. their next location. Yeah. yeah. Um, Whereas there were some black folks who lived in different areas in the city, like Henry Gray lived on Cherry Street, which was a prominent and wealthy neighborhood. Mm -hmm. He moved there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He was accepted there. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the others, especially those who were longing for home and they wanted to mirror their little community, like the little uh, plantation quarters that they just left and where they felt the most comfortable, they wanted the outskirts of town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my, my last question is about uh, Salem Chapel, the VME Church today. Could you talk a little bit about what the role does the BME Church play today? What you're still a congregation? Uh, what are what are what are you doing? Well, we're the rule today is um, we continue as um, a religious institution first and foremost. Our congregation is small, dwindling congregations, and the majority of the members are aging congregations. And we've witnessed churches locally close mm. down because they didn't have, you know, the continued support to keep going. Well, I know you say that the VME Church is on a crossroads, but I, I, I hope that there are hopeful things to come for, for that community, for your community, for the church's community, um, because it's such an important part of our history and plays a role in our community today as well. So. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. It, means really, it means a lot to have you here, <laughs> oh, so thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> Big thank you again to Rochelle Bush for taking the time to speak with me and to share her research and knowledge. I learned so much. The BME Church Salem Chapel was designated a National Historic Site in the year 2000. And as Rochelle mentions, it is still a practicing religious congregation. New members are always welcome. Members of the public are also invited to book guided tours of this historic church. Their tour season is between April 1st and October 31st. An exhibition space with photographs and more information on the history of the church are also on display for viewing. We've linked to more information on Salem Chapel in our episode notes, which you can find on the St. Catharines Museum blog. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Sarah Nixon with special thanks to our guest, Rochelle Bush. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.